Hello everybody and welcome back to the Movies Are Good podcast. It's been a little while, I've been off for three weeks, just emotionally recovering from having watched Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. No, I, I did catch meningitis, yeah. Actually, it was a form of meningitis, which I later found out was called meningism. That's right, no, seriously, you can look it up. Meningism. I was so happy, and yet I couldn't express it because I was so near death. Not really. It was, you know, they had to do some things to me. I'm not going to get into detail. They did a lot of tests for a couple of days in the hospital, and then uh, basically found out it's not the really, really bad kind of meningitis slash jism, and, uh, and you can go home and just rest for... Well, they said you should start improving after a week, and I guess I did. It was It was two weeks before I felt okay, and it was three before I was... I felt like I could come back and do any of this, yeah. Um, so, but seriously, I would let man who worked on Guardians of the Galaxy inside of me to jism. If they, <laughs> if they so wished, because holy crap. And that's what I want to start talking with today. We've got a few films have come out this month to catch up on. We're not actually too badly off because everybody left the box office to Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 for a couple of weeks. And uh, I'll I'm just kind of have to finish catching up next week because I haven't seen Fast and Furious yet, but that's fine. So, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. You know, it's let's start by saying it's a good way to kick off Phase 5. Um, as much as it, you know, is all about endings. Not everybody's ending, but most of them, it felt like an ending for them. Uh, it, was, it was beautiful because people have lost faith in the MCU. And, I mean, fair enough. Like, wow, you know, last year... I mean, Wakanda Forever was good, but it just it just felt sad again. To be fair, this film was just sad. This was an emotionally devastating ride. Holy crap. But yeah, um, ironically, I, I actually felt some mild disappointment with this movie. And that is just because my expectations were so sky high, it was silly times. But I also just think I felt sad? It seems like just so much happened in the interim between movies that we'll never get to see. And that really does bum me out a little bit because... I love this team, I love these people, and it feels like, I don't know, it feels like we were in a coma and we missed a very important part of their lives or something. <laughs> um, it is the saddest MCU film by a country mile. My emotions are splayed out like the entrails of some poor defenseless creature and James Gunn took a Harley Quinn baseball bat to them. Um, anyway, it's not the best MCU movie, but it is better than Volume 2 for me, and it completes this trilogy with just huge aplomb. It led the characters in some very unexpected directions. It feels strange to be saying a permanent goodbye to about half the team, and maybe not some of the others. The High Evolutionary was one hell of a villain. Um, I think overall for me, I'm, I've got to give We Are Groot, like a 9 out of 10. It was a really special movie. Um, I think it feels weird because it feels like James Gunn made this movie after getting called over to DC and getting put in charge of them because all of the fears, well, not fears, all of the weird hate that people online have been throwing at him about his movies in general and the themes they have and the style of them, it feels like he's purposefully with this movie trying to dismantle those fears say yeah things like superman legacy which he's currently writing yeah i could do that yeah i could do a serious movie yeah i could do a sad movie an emotionally powered movie and for me i don't feel like he had to do that because i feel like i don't know personally i thought that the first two guardians did a really good job of balancing everything around those i feel like this one does 
too, but it definitely leans more on the dial towards the emotion and the ouch of it all than the uh, comedy and the silliness and the fun. It's, it is a weird movie. You always think with MCU trailers, oh, that looks sad and serious, and then it ends up being quite fun. This one, no, not so much. And I think it's nice that they let him have that much creative control in order to do that. Um, especially because this has been a roller coaster to the making of this movie because they fired him. They fired Jim's gun after, like, Endgame and stuff when all of his old tweets surfaced. And then he had to get, like, rehired, and that was a whole process that took months, and then they started making it. So, kind of nuts um, when you think about it. But, yeah, I've been looking forward to this one since Endgame. This is the one I've been most excited for, probably, of just what was coming up. And, um, I don't know. I do, I do feel, like, marginally let down by it. I really expected it to be, like, a huge, huge one for me. And it is, to be fair, kind of, I'd say, bordering my MCU top 10, which is impressive. <laughs> I, I, I don't know why I feel disappointed. I think it is, it's not that I'm disappointed, it is that I'm just sad that it is over. And I didn't, so far, I've only listened through to it a couple times, but so far I don't like the soundtrack as much overall as I did the first two. Maybe that's just because I had more in this one that I already knew and loved. I already knew Dog Days Are Over. I already knew Badlands by Bruce Springsteen, great song. I already knew Creep, I already, you know. So I don't know if that's maybe it. There were less, like, secret gems for me to find in the soundtrack, but I got so excited, the idea of another soundtrack, because I found so many songs that I really, really love now for the first time in the first two soundtracks. So, yeah. I don't know about that one. That, that, that was strange for me. But, yeah, overall, uh, easy 9 out of 10. I loved it so much. Uh, it was a really special movie. Um, and yeah, really emotionally devastated the absolute crap out of me. <laughs> um, as for all the characters, I don't want to do too many spoilers, but I feel like most people have probably seen it because it's been out for about three weeks. Um, I, I liked everything with Rocket's story. I felt weird about Gamora's story. It really wasn't what I expected. Nebula, I liked. I liked her taking more of a center stage. That was good. Um, Groot and Rock, oh, well, yeah, Groot kind of was, yeah. <laughs> How much character development does Groot really get? How much character development does Groot really need? Um, Star-Lord, yeah, I really liked. Again, his story was just kind of more sad and melancholy than I expected. It was, it, it did surprise me. Um... And I'll be really interested to see where they go with him from here. I feel like I'd be happy enough watching just a Star-Lord movie on Earth doing something else. Or him getting involved in another team or something. It would be a weird shift though. That'd, that'd feel really strange. Um, and then, yeah, Drax. I really liked Drax's story. It was nice and simple. And, and just felt right somehow. Um, and Mantis as well. I like Mantis' story. So yeah, it was it was just really well done across the board for everybody. And I loved it. And yeah, easy uh, easy 9 out of 10. And <laughs> I gotta say, at the beginning of the MCU, I was a little, a little bit of a fanboy. I, I was kind of throwing out like 9 out of 10s quite easily. 
I, yeah, don't anymore. <laughs> I realized, like, I really don't anymore. So, when you say, like, oh, yeah, it's an MCU film, give it, like, a 9 out of 10. No, that's not what's been happening recently. No, no. Easily give Love and Thunder, like, a 4. Yeah, it was rough. It was a rough day, because I really was hyped for that one, too. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. But anyway, moving on. Peter Pan and Wendy. Hmm. I almost saved this to talk about next week because Little Mermaid's coming out next week and we're just going to have a larger discussion, I feel, about the Disney Live Action Remix. But um, I'll talk about this one now. It is, um, to the core, to the bone, a Disney Live Action Remake, isn't it? Um, so, basically, okay, Peter Pan and Wendy, right. So, Wendy's the hero. Captain Hook is a sad lost child in a Jude Law-sized body. The Lost Boys aren't boys. Tinkerbell isn't a horrible bitch this time, but Peter Pan is. The Ticking Crocodile is a Megalodon-sized monstrosity, and Tiger Lily is basically Arwen from Lord of the Rings. No, no, for real. Tiger Lily out here looking ready to fight some predators. She's literally Arwen. She's this elegant lady speaking languages that nobody else knows, riding in on a horse to heal the lead back to full health, and she's badass in a fight. <laughs> Great representation. It was a much better done character than it was in the original, but it is so uncanny to me. Every shot, even, looks like it's just stealing blatantly from Lord of the Rings. Um, but yeah, no, it was it was a fascinating movie. Um, there's not, I don't know, I feel like we will wait until next week to talk about how the Disney live action remakes are dumb and unneeded. Um, we'll just, yeah, jump into the story, okay? So there's a creepy old handicapped dude, used to be friends, best friends with this little boy. You know, <laughs> that's one thing I'll give them some credit for, doing the dynamic there correctly. Um, but it's still a weird idea that Captain Hook used to be best friends with Peter Pan because he is this creepy old mustached man. And, um, Peter Pan's this little boy and, yeah, it's, it's a little bit messy, but it's fine. They, they actually don't make it seem that creepy, even though it should be. Um, so yeah, Peter, especially early in the movie, he just seems like a little prick. And that was one of my bigger issues with it, okay? Wendy is very much set up the whole film as the protagonist, and then Peter Pan's, like, also there, and is kind of a dick most of the movie. He's a little bitch. Yeah. And uh, I didn't like Alexander Maloney in the role that much. Wendy, I thought, was cast very well. Alexander Maloney as Peter Pan, I didn't enjoy just in general. And I don't know whether that's because it was going to seem a bit silly and childish and Disney Channel-esque whoever you cast in that role as a, as a young guy playing Peter Pan. It maybe just was a cursed role to try and do in live action no matter what. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, I definitely didn't like it. Um, so that was a problem. Just the whole characterization of Peter Pan was just, oof, a bit rough. Um, and, yeah, as, as the movie goes on, it's less that he seems like just a simple prick, and he more seems like a useless, overly dependent on luck and his more capable friends asshole who chases away everybody that loves him. So I just hate him. <laughs> like, a lot. Um, the story is a pretty simple one. They've tried to add on bits here and there with uneven success. Uh, Wendy is really well cast. Peter is just simply not. And honestly, yeah, I think that's the best comparison I can make is that Alexander Maloney's Peter Pan makes this feel at times like a Disney Channel movie, which is ouch. 
Although to be fair, Disney Plus original movies that go straight there are pretty much the modern day equivalent of Disney Channel movies. Are they still making movies just for Disney Channel? I don't know. I saw Disney Plus make that like prom packed thing, which I haven't seen yet. And that looked so god awful. It looked exactly like an old school Disney Channel movie. So I'm not actually sure if Disney Channel just makes movies anymore. That's interesting. Um, but yeah, the uh, surprisingly many scenes without Peter in them uh, are actually pretty good. <laughs> the movie should probably just have been called like Wendy Darling. In, or Wendy in Neverland, or yeah, something like that. And then they could really have just left Peter out even a little bit more, and that probably would have worked better for them. Um, as she says herself, I guess it doesn't matter if the Lost Boys aren't all boys. Yeah, I can't believe that people are review bombing this because a black woman is playing a literal fairy tale character in Tinkerbell. Yara Shahidi does a fine job you know she doesn't talk for 99% of the movie <laughs> so it's kind of it is it is a very facial expression based rule and you're just kind of flitting about Tinkerbell's not much of anything but she did it fine you know I have nothing to complain about with her so yeah just review bombing straight up and I can't believe that that's being done in the case where it is a tiny pixie fairy tale character thing that she's playing is it really important how we... No, it doesn't matter. I'm not even going to get into it. Um, <laughs> overall, I want to give... Not exactly hooking me in. Like a 5 out of 10. It's definitely not the worst Disney Live Action remake. Um, it might be the worst one they do this year. <laughs> it feels very strange that we're getting in the space of like a month, two, for very classic properties. I am... Reasonably looking forward to the Little Mermaid. I, I'm not looking forward. To, I'm never looking forward to a Disney live action remake, but I feel like it'll be better than this one. Um, that is also getting review bombed for, <laughs> but yeah, um, for a fairy tale character, again, being played by a black woman. So, what are you gonna do? Um, but yeah, no, I I I don't feel like it was overly PC'd up or modernized. I feel like at least they tried to add on some stuff, but generally it just it did. It just felt weak and like a weak attempt. And it did feel like exactly what you expect. If you if you wrote down a formula, which you probably could quite neatly for one of these Disney live action remakes, for what they change, what they do, what they attempt to do, it it would fit it pretty much exactly. And to be fair for a Disney Plus one, what more are you expecting? But at the same time, if that's what it's going to be, why bother even making it? Is it really doing anything? Disney Plus lost a lot of subscribers recently. <laughs> I don't think this is the solution. So, weird one. Giving it a 5 out of 10. And let's move on to... Oh, I don't want to talk about this. Um, <laughs> Bo is afraid. Man, okay. Uh, right. How do I discuss this? What can you say? About a three-hour schizophrenic episode that involves a giant homicidal penis monster. <laughs> I wish I was joking. Ari Aster and, indeed, A24, the whole film company, have always been good at playing with the line between really good and profound and complete nonsensical shite. Um, and there's movies like Midsummer, which Ari Aster made, which are really incredible. And wow, so well done. And then there's movies like, for example, The Green Knight, which came out a couple years ago, and I thought, personally, it was absolute nonsensical, 
bollocks. Um, and this, unfortunately, is the latter. Joaquin Phoenix stars as Bo, who is afraid, and I got on board with it in the first act, or the first hour, because each act is its own hour. <laughs> I got on board with it for the first hour because he was scared of things, and it was showing like, oh god, this is happening to him, but it's like the worst case scenario of what he could imagine happening to him, and it's all, it's all nuts. It, it was crazy, but in a way that was manageable, understandable. Had enough on the surface going on that you didn't need to really think carefully about all of the underlying things to feel anything. But it just kept as it went on and on and on and on, getting madder and madder and stupider and stupider. And by the end, I was just so done. <laughs> I couldn't believe it, yeah. Um... It really does. It just... It just feels like he had a very specific vision and wouldn't let anyone get in the way of it, no matter how much they came to him and said, the fuck? <laughs> and the problem is with A24 movies, that happens a lot. The Green Knight was a very good example of a film that you kind of thought you knew what it was going to be about, and then it just kind of strays off into... La La Land, Dreamland, random bullshit that, I don't know, I don't feel dumb. I feel like I've watched a lot of films and, and I get what they're trying to say with all the underlying things, or at least some of them. But even so, I just don't get anything out of watching what's happening on the screen for vast periods of these movies, especially this one, because, my God, it was a vast movie. Three hours that really, sitting in the cinema watching it, felt like five. And... I felt like the audience in general in the cinema was kind of with me in the, for the first hour, there was a lot of like laughing out loud, a lot of like, oh yeah, this is like a, per a, like, like a, a cinematic personification of anxiety. That's what it felt like at the beginning and it got a lot of laughs, it was really going well and then people just seemed to drift off. I was genuinely close to drifting off a couple times sitting watching it, and I was still a little bit ill, but even so, um, <laughs> it was just such a shitstorm. It was just such a hyperthermic shitstorm of a ride that just, it felt like it was really, it was almost a roller coaster for the first section of the ride, and then you're expecting it to keep going like that, and instead it just kind of like flattens out and starts showing you these weird things. It was like a haunted house, except it wasn't trying to be scary. It seems like Ari Aster, after making two of the most well-known horror movies of the last 10 years, decided he hates the horror genre, or wants to make fun of it, or that it's all silly. I don't get it. It was a dumb, dumb thing. Um, I really didn't like it. I, I really just didn't. Um... I don't know what to say. Uh, I can't in good conscience tell anyone to go watch this. I love watching bad movies, but my longevity was tested um, with the whole three-hour length of this. It just wasn't even... If you watched a B-movie and it was really garbagey and kind of funny because of how garbagey it was, you would get more enjoyment out of it than I feel like you would out of this because it's like you just don't get it and some of the sequences especially it feels very split into pieces 
for about eh, maybe as much as two hours. But the pieces just really devolve into just in a total nuttiness after about the first hour. And um, yeah, it's just really upsetting how much he drags out some of the sequences in the second half. Because you're just thinking, oh, you could easily cut an hour off of this. It would be a better film for it. And it might have made marginally more sense. Um, <laughs> Uh, so I just, I don't get what he was trying to do. I didn't like it. And I'm giving I'm Afraid of Bo 3 out of 10. Which feels harsh, but well earned. I gave it a mark for each R. <laughs> um, there are some other movies that I've just kind of threw out the kind of end of April, start of May missed that I should catch up on while, uh, while we're here having a big catch up episode. Polite Society. So when I say this is the British film that I was most excited for at the beginning of the year, I mean it. Polite Society looked great. I had a lot of hype. It looked like this ridiculously fun mental thing where an aspiring stump woman sets out to disrupt the arranged marriage of her sister, feet, crazy weird OTT martial arts fight scenes. And that is essentially what it was. The weird thing is that there's just something surprisingly teenage girlish about the style at times. I don't, I don't necessarily mean that in a bad way, but I kind of do. It just feels, especially, there's this sequence where the three girls, who are teenage girls, go to the gym to try and dress up as guys and steal the laptop of her sister's future husband so that they can get dirt on him. And it feels like an episode of Lizzie McGuire jammed into the middle of a much better movie. And it just feels like they just couldn't quite fill it out, the film, the runtime they wanted. And there are other points where it feels like the style is just a bit, eh, and it kind of gets away with those, but just that sequence in the middle, it just feels insanely dumb. It does feel so Disney Channel-ish. That's the only way I can really describe it. Um, and there are these great fight scenes and craziness, and it, it feels almost like RRR levels of, what the hell is this devolving into suddenly? But it just, yeah, watching it back, I feel like I would get annoyed by that more each time. Do you know what I mean? It would it would bother me a little bit more that there's just this random bit in the middle that just feels so silly and unnecessary. It's not even really as good as like an episode of Liz McGuire. That's my main problem. <laughs> I'd love to go back and watch a bit of Liz McGuire, but this just, it, it felt very much like this was a Disney Channel movie in the middle. And at either end, it felt much better than that. So it was just a very confusing thing to me. But yeah, overall, I really, I love Rita Aru, who plays the sister. I really liked the lead as well. Thought she was well cast, thought she did it well. And a lot of the stuff, it, it is just the stuff with her friends that feels very high school, because it is high school <laughs> they're in. But it just feels exceptionally unnecessarily silly and childish. It feels like the audience it was skewing for, it was kind of looking to really include the younger side of things, and in doing so, it maybe did make itself a bit less appealing to adults. Not to say it's a bad movie at all. I did enjoy it. I expected to like it more. Just, I, I expected it to be like on a even, up to like 9 out of 10 level. I was hoping for. Instead, I'm giving Crouching Tiger Homecoming Warrior 7 out of 10. 
it... Yeah, I don't know how else to describe it. I really thought it would be... Just, just a really classic sort of British movie. Because how often do you see British movies go for a proper action, almost bordering on blockbuster style? And it tried to sell itself as that. It was trying to sell itself as a blockbuster, straight up. And it very much just isn't. And that's okay that it isn't. But it just feels really weird then in the middle. <laughs> when you're going, what am I watching? This is just not the film I expected. Um, so yeah, bit unfortunate. Bit of a letdown for me, for sure. Again, like Guardians of the Galaxy, it almost feels like it's just a bit of a letdown because I was expecting something different and had very high expectations. Um, but unlike Guardians of the Galaxy, it wasn't letting me down just because I was kind of sad that something was ending. It was more just a little bit worse than I, I thought it might be. <laughs> but still, 7 out of 10. Good, good movie. Not a good movie, though. Big George Foreman. This was bizarre. And I think I've probably talked at some point in the podcast in the, in the past about how much biopics are pissing me off right now. <laughs> Hollywood is so... Same thing with the Disney live-action remakes. Hollywood is so done, or needs to be so done with biopics for a little while, okay? We had a golden era when they were like doing Bohemian Rhapsody. And I know people think, Bohemian Rhapsody, terrible biopics, so inaccurate. But Bohemian Rhapsody, to me, has always been like a great pinnacle for biopic because even though it's kind of in the biopic mold a bit... It is happy enough breaking away and even breaking away from what's true in order to tell a story that Freddie Mercury would have loved it to be, you know? And, yeah, I don't know. It felt like it was making it into a thrill ride the level of which Freddie Mercury's life was, you know what I mean? Other biopics <laughs> keep the kind of same formula, but... Oh my goodness, they do it with just so much less, I don't know what the word is, pizzazz. And Big George Foreman is a great example of that. Because, A, why is this a biopic, okay? <laughs> George Foreman, if you don't know, oldest world heavyweight champion in boxing history, okay? Very impressive. Good job for him, okay? I couldn't get near the ring at 25. I already feel old and creaky. So him doing it at 45 or whatever it was, that's very impressive. My thing is this. It should have been a movie about his return to the ring. That's that's the Rocky. That's the, ooh, true story Rocky movie that you'd love it to be, okay? It could have even started from when he was World Heavyweight Champion when he was younger. And, and, and the first act was kind of him realizing he wants to step away from that. And then the second act can be him and his preacher life. And then third act is him going back and getting back into it or whatever. Instead, it starts with him as a kid, shows how he was really purr, shows him growing up, shows him getting into fights at school and having rage issues, shows him going into this, uh, I can't remember what it was, it was it was essentially like a training place for like young men to become engineers and get various jobs like that, shows him being there and making friends with people and still having rage issues, shows him getting into boxing and getting into amateur boxing and then going to the Olympics, and then shows him becoming World Heavyweight Champion, and, and then the whole fight with Muhammad Ali, Rumble in the Jungle in Africa, and losing, and then it shows... 
I'm serious. And then it shows his uh, his match where he goes tries to get back to the level where he can fight Ali again for the belt, and then realizes after losing that fight that he he's born again and he dies and for a few seconds or stops breathing and then he realizes he wants to be a christian and a minister and then he becomes a minister and quits boxing and has the discussion with ali where he's like no this is what i'm doing no i'm i apologize for being so rageful and then he starts all of this like the gym and the uh the everything that he wants a nice youth center with all the money he's got from the boxing and then it shows him losing all the money from the boxing i'm serious i know this is taking forever it felt like it took forever in the cinema it was only i don't know 220 2 hours 20 minutes long but it felt so much longer because it jammed so much in there and then after he's lost all the money he decides he's going to get back into fighting and gets up and goes and oh yeah and it just kind of skips over the part where he gets all these wins once he returns and then he gets the world heavyweight championship match and i'm just watching this in the cinema go what get to the damn point holy long walk for a short drink of water batman it's incredible um it's a bad movie biopics in hollywood are exhausted like george foreman after eight rounds with Muhammad ali i'm so tired of watching this formula and it follows the exact formula in such an unnecessary manner because it really should just pick up his story when he's already an adult quitting boxing for the first time already a preacher or something it's all rushed and the emotions it wants to gather up just aren't there as a result so i'm giving big george flopman four out of ten it's just i don't get it you know for me this this dude is a is, is a name on a grill okay <laughs> that's being born in 97 after he'd like lost the titles and all and retired for the last time that's all that matters to me that's all I know him from. So telling me he's the oldest world heavyweight boxing champion in history, that's the line. That's the line that sells the movie. Only about the last 20 minutes of the movie are really about that. The last maybe 30. You've got two hours of film there just about him meandering through his life before any of that. So it just, it, it's really, I was fed up. I was exhausted by the time we actually got to doing that. And I just, I didn't get why they would make the film like that full stop i felt like he was cast okay but he was such an asshole <laughs> you know that, that's the problem as a kid he had these rage issues he was really hungry and then he starts getting older he starts becoming a little bit more of a prick by the time he's won the gold medal you're just kind of thinking Ugh. and then by the time he's world heavyweight champion when he's young you just think oh my god he's such an unlikable douchebag and if you're doing a Christmas carol, okay, because that's what I like to call them. If you're doing a Christmas carol where it's, oh, protagonist is bad guy, protagonist has a change, protagonist is good guy, then that should be the story. Why is the story, this is a child, asshole, 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 oh look, he's become an asshole by the end of, I don't know, the first hour of the film, and then we're going to show you how he changes. That's stupid <laughs> that just feels like it's so badly put together as a movie i don't get why they wanted to do it that way it is nuts that's the way they did it though and yeah what, what can you do <laughs> but it's really annoying because it just doesn't feel like they had a proper plan going into the movie you know how you look at the star wars sequel trilogy and you think wow they did not have a plan from the beginning of that trilogy to the end it feels like that but in one movie Feels like three different George Foreman movies all put together and 
I wouldn't watch either of the first two individually as movies. The third one, sure. But that is literally like the last half an hour. That whole section of his life. This is a preacher who is a retired boxer who manages to get back in the ring and win the World Heavyweight Championship in his mid-40s. That is a movie. This whole blah, 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 blah. before it, that is not a movie. <laughs> that is just a mess. And uh, it wasn't truly terrible or anything, but it is. It's a kind of 4 out of 10. Could not recommend checking it out, okay? Bafflingly, a similar score will be given to... Killer Sofa. Guys, movies are good, but movies are also bad. And every week I like to do a really bad movie and um, and talk about that just to just to even the balance when I talk about good movies. Although this week, wow, that's a mixed bag. Yeah, what have we gone? 9 out of 10, 5 out of 10, 3 out of 10, 7 out of 10, 4 out of 10. Yeah, it's a mixed bag this week. Movies aren't that good, but, <laughs> but Killer Sofa, okay, hear me out. There's a movie called Killer Sofa. If you give New Zealanders money to make movies, they make Lord of the Rings. If you don't give them money, then they make movies about demonic corpses that are trapped inside furniture. And there's a nice lady who has the strange power to attract all men to her. So she's obviously dating the one guy who isn't too crazy enamored with her. He's gay. And uh, she gets a new sofa, which gets delivered, and then some creepy things start happening around her flat, and then it starts murdering people. Yeah. Yeah, no, there's nothing subtle about the ways in which this sofa, yeah, it's just straight up murdering people. Um, so, let me, right, some B-movies take themselves seriously and come off as hilarious. Some try to come off as hilarious and feel spectacularly, which is an even worse crime. This one is actually pretty hilarious and is definitely trying to be. And as a result, it's kind of a fun watch. I will not tell you that it's a good movie. It's not. Much of it is about the characters watching YouTube videos about the supernatural. I'm still confused because it was just a dude in a sofa, but it was also a ghost. Basically, what you need to know about Killer Sofa is Kiwis should not be allowed to make movies. <laughs> Kiwis are dangerous in films. The last New Zealand film I saw was about zombie sheep. Kiwis should not be allowed cameras. They're renegades. They're mavericks. They're too dangerous to make movies. Their ideas are the dumbest things possible, executed in ways that are actually pretty funny, which somehow makes it worse because it clearly means some of the people working on this have something resembling talent, and they refuse to use it for good. They want to commit evil acts. They they probably actually just shoved the dude inside that. So far, I wouldn't put it past them. They're cheeky, they're hooligans, a bunch of kiwi rapscallions on the loose that can't be stopped in their reign of terror. I'm giving killer chair, because it's not really a sofa, 4 out of 10. I wanted to get it lower, but it just kept moving itself back up the scale. It's such a cheeky movie. These people are crazy. I don't know what they set out to do, but I think they definitely achieved it. So you have to give them props for that, okay? <laughs> Seriously. Oh... It's just mental. Now, every week, we also talk about something that's kind of outside the realms of TV, but inside the realms of pop culture. I bet you think we're going to talk about, I don't know, like uh, the new Zelda game. Nope, can't afford it. So, we're going to talk about... <laughs> the weirdest thing ever, okay? I set this up to do for my episode that I was going to film and release around May 4th. But then I got sick with meningitis, so I didn't. So, I want to talk about it anyway now, Okay. I'm talking about the Star Wars The Clone Wars series from 2003. Everyone thinks, oh yeah, Star Wars The Clone Wars, the 2008 series that they just wrapped up a couple of years ago on Disney+. Plus. No. I mean, yes, we'll talk about that eventually. Great. 
I'm, I'm watching that through for the first time, loving it. But I was watching that for, through for the first time on Disney+, Plus, and I saw this series, and I went, what? And basically what happened was, after the release of Attack of the Clones, George Lucas went, I want to sell more Star Wars merchandise. I want to sell more toys. So we're going to make a tiny TV show. And it was literally, the first two seasons, every episode is three minutes long. And then the third season, it was like 12-minute episodes. But it's a tiny TV show. It's so weird, and it literally does, it, to be fair, it does a better job of bridging the gap between episodes two and three than the actual Clone Wars series, okay? Because it's actually focused on doing that um, without making it a really weirdly long runtime. So what happens is basically it shows some battles, it, it expands upon some of the Jedi characters, and it actually shows Anakin kind of wandering closer to the Dark Path, which great yeah <laughs> and then it shows the whole third season basically is about the droid army invading coruscant i don't know where surprising them so that they can steal palpatine so <laughs> what's wrong with that it's awesome it's actually really really well done it is a short show you can watch the whole thing in less than three hours it's all on disney plus the it's basically just blocked the first two seasons are blocked into like a 70 minute thing and then the third season is blocked into like a 60 to 70 minute thing and it's awesome it is such a great watch i i was stunned by how much i enjoyed it the animation aged a little bit but um i basically i got a few observations here okay so <clears throat> anakin is confirmed for sure, to be the poutiest white girl in the galaxy by this show, okay? Ventress is confirmed to be the spawn of Satan. My surprise favorite duo was Yoda and Padme. And Kit Fisto is, without a doubt, the sexiest Jedi. That's what I learned from watching the Star Wars, the Clone Wars 2003 show, okay? Um, for real, it was low-key amazing. Uh, the show... It's a fascinating watch. There is a lot of good stuff about Anakin because it shows how Ventress rises to become kind of an apprentice to Dooku and then gets sent to take out Anakin and Palpatine's basically going whoever wins that fight like I want them I want that one as my Padawan and um and the fight is actually awesome because it spreads it over a few episodes because the episodes are three minutes long so it's actually it's like 10 12 minutes of just awesome lightsaber fight and at the end of it, Anakin, like, does have to kind of unleash the dark side to beat her. And it's awesome. It's so well done. The animation, yeah, it's from 2003. It's a little cheap at times. It's pretty old. But even so, it is great. I can't recommend the show enough because it is a short enough watch that really feels like such a nice gap is bridged between episodes two and three. Much better than the Clone Wars. The Clone Wars I love watching but it's trying to do so much expansion because there's so much of it that it kind of makes a few things feel a little messier in the prequel trilogy in general, but it's fine. Uh, I Literally, I would give the whole show like a nine out of 10. It's such a cool watch. I loved it so much. It does feel like an episode 2.5 properly, just in animated form. I mean, it's a little messy because it's jumping around different places, but it's still got a fairly cohesive story progression throughout it, which is really impressive for a three-minute show. <laughs> anyway, that's uh, that's pretty much all for this week. Bit of a shorter episode. I'm still just uncertain about my voice. Um, it, it's been okay, you know, <laughs> managed. But this is my first time on camera for a little while. Still, we're kind of caught up mostly there. I'll kind of, um, next week, we'll have to look ahead, right? 
uh, next week we'll be talking about the new Little Mermaid, which <sighs> I'm basically just hoping, and we'll talk a lot I think next week about the Disney live action remakes, a lot more than I did this week. I'm hoping it's more Aladdin remake than it is, oh, take your pick <laughs> of the bad ones, <laughs> like Mulan remake. Um, I, I do think it's, I'm hoping for like a 7 out of 10 with that one. I think it looks like it'll be fun, but at the same time, I am fully expecting them to, as usual, ruin the songs. So that's why I'm hoping it's more like Aladdin. Aladdin is one example where, actually, I quite like the songs. Um, but yeah, not hugely hopeful. We'll see. And I will do a whole proper segment on the Disney Live Action Remix, because... They just annoy me in general. And <laughs> I want to talk about that. Um, also, Fast X. I don't know if I'm going to do a whole Fast and Furious thing because I feel like there's a day when they'll end it. It was meant to be with Eleven. Now they're saying it's going to be a kind of finale trilogy. So it'll be Fast and Furious 12 that's actually the last one. But whenever it is, I feel like then is the time to do a whole Fast and Furious episode. And I'm going to wait on that. So I'll just review Fast X on its own. I'm hoping it... I'm hoping 8 out of 10. I feel like this, it seems like it's maybe a bit of a return to form for them after kind of 8 and 9 were just getting more progressively unbearably dumb as opposed to just regular dumb. Um, so I'm hoping like an 8 out of 10, you know. I really like John Cena and his character I'm hoping as like a friendly one will add a lot of fun to their gang. Like, he was such a terrible villain because it was like, oh, it's Dominic's long-lost brother. Obviously. It's John Cena. Obviously, he's going to become part of their just family. Like, in two seconds flat. So they're not going to do anything with him as a villain that's going to make him too irredeemable. So it was just a case of, yeah, add him in. <laughs> that was what the ninth film was. So I'm really hoping that's not what they're doing with Jason Momoa's character. And therefore, he can do some really nasty, irredeemable shit and be a cool villain. Um... So, guessing an 8 out of 10 for that. Uh, we've also got a couple I gotta catch up on, like, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. I don't know what to make of that. I haven't read the book or anything, which is apparently really famous. Um, it looks like a bit of a bog-standard kind of coming-of-age story. It's not a modern set one, is it? So, I'm kind of thinking, eh, it'll be good, but they probably should have made this film a while ago. We'll see. I really like Rachel McAdams. I'm really hopeful. I'm going to say 8 out of 10 is my guess for that as well. Um, Hypnotic. The ben Affleck one that I've heard nothing except Inception but shit. That's, that, that's the only review I've heard from someone so far about this. I haven't seen much about it. I'm not looking forward to catching up on that one. I'm guessing like a 4 out of 10. I'm hoping that going in with low expectations I won't hate it too much, but mm, I'm not too hopeful. Um, we'll also be looking at couple of just general things throughout like April, May that I've missed out on. Like, I dare not say it. A Tourist's Guide to Love came up on Netflix. Uh, the Mother with Jennifer Lopez came up on Netflix. Tourist's Guide to Love, I'm guessing, is straight up like 3 out of 10. Because, ow. Just looking at it, just ow. Um, the Mother, if I get to watch that as well. Uh, yeah, Netflix action-y thriller thing. You're talking bog standard, like 5 out of 10 probably. Jennifer Lopez, decent for those roles. But Netflix made, so probably weak on story and everything else. Um, guessing five. Hoping six. 
maybe more predicting for actually <laughs> we'll see um <laughs> and on movies are bad next week we're gonna talk about um, i'm keeping with the new zealand theme okay because i mentioned it earlier and i kind of thought oh that's a good idea actually i'm gonna review black sheep which is the new zealand cheap b movie about zombie sheep yes <laughs> so I'm super excited for that. Really looking forward to it. It's going to be a weird week, but we'll finally be just totally caught up by, by the time I've done that episode, hopefully, on everything that's going on right now in cinema. Thank you guys very much for watching. I hope you enjoyed, as always, and I will see you uh, later. Oh my god, don't forget to subscribe. Oh my god, whoa.